The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Let's open to the book of Hebrews in chapter 10. Reach out your hand for a Bible and open with me to Hebrews chapter 10. If you need a Bible, uh, stretch out your hand to the pew rack and open to page 1007 in a pew Bible. It's the large print Bible is 1,194. And students and children, your page numbers are there as well. Uh, we love God's Word here at Edgington, and so we want to open up together and follow along in the Scriptures this morning. Like I said, we are beginning a new sermon series that will be all through the fall called Reverence and Awe on the realities of Christian worship, the beauties of Christian worship. We just finished uh, studying the book of James together from January to last week. We were in the book of James, and when we finish uh, this sermon series uh, Lord willing, we'll be headed back to the Old Testament after Advent and beginning the new year, but uh, now we're doing a special topical sermon series on worship, and this morning we're talking about uh, just the very basics on gathering together, the very basics, of the physical act of being in the same place for the purpose of worship gathered together. So, Hebrews chapter 10, and specifically we're going to be looking at verses 24 and 25, but we'll be reading through verse, uh, from 19 through verse 25. Uh, but as you're there, just to kind of establish a bit of context for what we're looking at uh, this morning, I want to address the fact that you could go online and Google metrics, statistics, and all sorts of information and find a million different polls with a million different numbers that will give you all kind of differences and even inconsistent and contradictory data about the statistics of church attendance in America. And maybe this is of interest to you, but for all the companies that do this polling and research and survey data, uh, one of the most reputable is the Barna Group. They were the first organization to coin the term nominal Christian that reflected a person who identified with Christ in name but didn't actively participate in any corporate activities of the church. They came up with that term, nominal Christian. But it is interesting to know that they've also invented a new term to describe a new population of America as it relates to their patterns of church attendance. So you see, we're used to speaking about people in terms of those who are churched. I don't know if you use that term or not, churched. Those people who are active Christians who are involved in the life of the church, which is reportedly about four in ten Americans are churched, they would say. Well, unchurched are those who are not active, non-Christians, which is apparently 43%. But what's interesting now is that we have a new term. We're used to churched and unchurched, but the new term is de-churched. De-churched. 34% of Americans are de-churched. What does that mean? It means they were those who were formerly either very somewhat or minimally active churchgoers, but who have now made a conscious movement away from organized religion on purpose. De-churched. So... De-churched Christianity. Who would have thought of something like that? Uh, it might be interesting that you would like to know perhaps the top five de-churched cities in America. You could probably guess some of them. Springfield, Massachusetts, Portland, Maine, Seattle, Washington, Boston, Massachusetts, and San Francisco, California. Now, you would say those are big cities. Those are population centers. Uh, that, that makes sense. But I wonder what the statistics would be about Lower Rock Island County. De-churched of Lower Rock Island County. Or even more specific, could we categorize those who have been de-churched from Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church? De-churched. 
Now, whether you're struggling with that issue yourself or you know someone who is or family members, maybe you're not quite to that point or maybe you are asking yourselves the question, you know, is this, is this really all for me? You know, this old church thing, church people. Thinking about de-churching yourself, walking away. Well, the book of Hebrews, in a general sense, is actually addressing that particular issue. Those who find themselves kind of on the cusp where they say, you know, is this really worth it? This old church business. The book of Hebrews is actually written partially as a, as a warning, as a caution, as a, as a compelling come back to the center of the life of the community of faith. And so that's what the book of Hebrews is generally about. So before we read God's word this morning, we want to pray and ask God's blessing upon it as we hear it. Let's pray. Father, with your word open before us, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for the fact that you speak to us here, that you teach us, that we reveal Jesus Christ to us. Lord, give us open eyes, open ears, open hearts to receive all that you've given to us. And Lord, give us faith to receive it honestly and sincerely as well. May your word fall upon us with power this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And now hear God's word from Hebrews in chapter 10, starting at verse 19 through verse 25. This is the word of God. Therefore, brothers, Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. And so let's continue to hear what God's word has to say to us this morning. So then this this issue of de-churched Christianity or perhaps the idea that it's possible to identify with Christ, identify and take upon the name of myself as a Christian but have nothing to do with the church. It's It's a very popular sentiment perhaps. I like Jesus, I don't like his people. Uh, I think Gandhi was actually the first person to popularize that phrase. I like your Christ, but not your Christians. Now that sentiment has brought itself into the lives of what has generally been accepted as Christianity in America, where we think it is possible to be a Christian but have nothing to do with the church insofar as we have this movement, de-churched Christianity or churchless Christianity, where there are all kinds of books actually written to this target audience, books like Life After Church, Quitting Church, which, uh, which they make up a new term as well. Uh, they call those who have left church, they call them leavers. De-churched Christians are leavers. And one book that's called, So You Don't Want to Go to Church Anymore? Question mark. Now, I'm not encouraging you to go get that book per se. I'm acknowledging the fact that this is a phenomenon that's active all around us and may be something that you wrestle with, your friends, your family, people around you. 
this phenomenon of churchless Christianity, but the New Testament doesn't know anything of this concept of a churchless Christianity. In fact, in the New Testament, the normal reality is that those who identify themselves with Jesus gather together with other people who identify themselves with Jesus. It is a normal pattern in the New Testament. And one of the other basic facts about the New Testament is that all the letters of the New Testament are written to communities. It is assumed that that as Paul writes Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians, he's writing to the church or churches that are there and the people that are gathered together who have been transformed by Jesus and are seeking to follow him so that they can be counseled through the apostles' instruction. But the New Testament has everything to say about the community of Christ, the church. So what we want to be doing in this sermon series is really wrapping our minds around, you know, what is this thing that we're doing when we get together here? This whole physical act of gathering for worship. What is this all about? And why do we do this or that? And what does it mean? And we're trying to draw our thoughts around the beauty of Christian worship. And so I don't want you to actually speak out and fill in these blanks. But if I were to ask you to fill in the blanks of these things, what would you say? Church is so you know, what would you, I don't want to be a mind reader right now, but church is so, or when I go to church, I want to be, you know, what would you say there? Church people are so, the worship style at Edgington is quite, what would you say? What do you think to process these thoughts about what we're doing when we gather for Worship. Well, the book of Hebrews has something to say about this element of gathering together. And so we're going to draw out from verses 24 and 25 just five, five things that I think that uh, start to shape our understanding of this business of what we're doing when we get together here and, and why it so deeply matters and is formative for you and your family, uh, both for your life and for your future, for your eternal life as well. So five things out of Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Let's look at that again in verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now right away, the first thing that jumps out of there, what is church for? You see that on your outline perhaps in your bulletin. What is, what is church for? The first thing we could say perhaps is the word encouragement encouraging. See that at the end of verse 25, encouraging one another to gather together in assemblies on the Lord's day is for the purpose of encouraging one another because you and I need to be encouraged. We find ourselves to be generally a discouraged people. And so we need to gather together for the purpose of affirming to one another spiritual truths to remember and teach them to one another. Things like what Jesus says to us in John chapter 10, you will never perish and no one will snatch you from my hand. But some of you have weeks where you feel like you're being snatched out of the hand of Jesus and you feel like you're perishing and all is lost. What's the church for? It's for affirming to you the reality that Jesus promises not to leave you or forsake you to encourage you in that reality that you are held by Christ. And we need to be encouraged with that. Hebrews is, of course, assuming that it's quite possible to be discouraged and downtrodden and forgetful of spiritual truths to such a degree that we need to encourage each other. Uh, that word encourage literally means to, to bind and fuse courage into you, to make you strong, 
when you feel weak, to pick each other up in encouragement. Now, I know people like that in, in this church who are so quick to do that, right? They'll come up to you and say, something's wrong and I know it, so don't give me the everything's fine thing. What's going on? Now, some people might see that as invasive, but in another sense, I think the people who are doing that do it out of a sincere compassion to, to love and encourage. Do you have people like that in your life, in this church, who you look to for encouragement? Or are you someone who is about the business of encouraging others? That's what church is for, in one sense, encouragement. Secondly, sort of get into this issue, what does it matter if I'm here or not? The second thing that comes out of this is, I think, the element of strengthening. Strengthening. Notice in verse 24 that there is the element of togetherness. Uh, verse 25, togetherness, neglecting to meet together. There's an element of strength in numbers, the confidence that you are not alone, the, the union and communion that we enjoy with other people. Now, some people are so introverted that they would rather sit in a closet by themselves all week long, and they're quite happy. But there are other people who absolutely feed off the social energy of other people. But irrespective to your introversion or your extroversion, we need each other in the church as an element of strengthening. Now, a couple of years ago, we were out in California and visited the redwoods, and the redwoods are a beautiful thing. 300-foot tall trees, tallest redwood ever measured, I think, something like 380 feet tall. Do you know that 300-foot tall tree, that their roots only go down about five feet? And that's because they grow out, not down. Uh, the, the root of a redwood tree, 300 feet tall, can grow uh, up to a radius of 100 feet out. And they intertwine amongst the roots of other redwood trees so that the tree that is itself shallow by itself is made strong by the interconnectedness of the other trees. That's a clear metaphor, isn't it? The, 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 the gathering together, the strengthening of uh, itself in community. And that's what we confess together in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the communion of saints. When we say that, we're not talking about the Lord's Supper. We're talking about the fellowship of God's people, the community, the commonality that we enjoy with one another. And isn't that one of the beautiful things where uh, you just get to know each other? You, you learn about each other's stories and where you've been and where you're going and what you've learned along the way. One of the most popular Christian books ever written is Pilgrim's Progress. And one of the best things about that book is all the characters that Christian meets along the way. And in the church, there's so many, call them characters amongst us, isn't there? Right? People in our lives that we look to for one thing or another, whether for wisdom or encouragement or patience or whatever it else might be. Now, now you might feel like no one is paying attention to the wisdom that you have. And that might be a call to you to turn around to someone else and put your arm around them and say, let me walk alongside you here. Or you might feel lost and hopeless and say, I don't know what to do here. Do you know that there's people all in this room who would love to help you? Because the Christian church is not just a, a, a group of individual pilgrims walking alone. We are together walking on a journey together towards the same goal in Jesus Christ. When I am weak, there are people who can be strong on my behalf and bear me up. And the element of togetherness is the commonality of community that the book of Hebrews is emphasizing it. And it's saying, don't forsake this. Don't forsake this. But also here, what does the church do? 
What, what, what purpose do we have in the church when we get together? Uh, wh- why are we supposed to be together? Not just for social reasons, not just for, not just for encouragement, although that's an element here, but what do we do? Look in verse 24. Verse 24 says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. When the writer of Hebrews uses the word consider, uh, there's a couple other places where uh, the book of Hebrews talks about consider, and one of them is in chapter 3, verse 24, where the writer says, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. And so it's not just a, you know, think, think passively about it, but, but take an intentional, deliberative time to think about why is it that we are here for our gathering and the physicality of our gathering. Now, in today's world, right, we enjoy all kinds of technology that allows us to FaceTime with somebody halfway across the world, and it's a crazy reality, or grandparents can see their grandchildren in another state, or whatever the case might be, but it's, it's not quite as good as being there, obviously. I watched plenty of Notre Dame games on television before I was actually in the stadium, and there's something different about being there and hearing the rumble of the crowd and all of that, the physicality and the incarnational element of being present together. Now, you know, we're working on you know, podcasts for the church so that if you miss and you want to pick up a sermon, you can get that, but it's still different from being together with God's people. It can't be replaced because we propel each other forward. And when it says uh, stir up one another there in verse 24, uh, that word could actually be translated as provoke. Okay, You think about provoking the siblings in the backseat, you know, they're poking me, they're provoking. But this is a positive provocation in the sense of you know, moving each other forward, providing the necessary energy that the other person needs to keep going when you feel weak and tired. That's the the purpose of uh, gathering together, considering how to move each other forward in love and good works. But there's also this issue here of, you know, what about when I'm not here? What about coming together in the first place, the usefulness of all of this, which is why the warning is here given, verse 25, not neglecting to meet together not neglecting or not forsaking. Because the way the Bible speaks of the church together, of course, is as a, a metaphor of a body from 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians verse 4. Uh, Christ is the head of the body and we are the, the parts of the body and together we make up Christ's body and we can't be that without you. Now again, these statistics can fluctuate, of course, but today the, the term active Christian, an active Christian is measured as someone who attends worship three times in two months. Is considered active by pollsters, whatever you want to call that. Three times in two months, two-thirds of years of Sundays, 35 out of 52 Sundays, and still be considered active. But the book of Hebrews is saying, but, but when you aren't here, when you forsake the assembly, when you are not present, the church can't fully be the church without you. And failing to meet together, if you look a little bit further back in the text, failing to assemble together is is actually what comes about from the deeper problem. And the deeper problem in verse 23 is that what first happens is that we waver from our confession. And the result of the wavering is the forsaking of the assembly. 
So when a person decides to go away, what has first happened in their heart is a real sense of uh, destruction of confidence that Christ is worth their time in the first place. That the confession of their hope has wavered and then the symptom is walking away. Which is why the Lord's Day is like a weekly spiritual checkup for us. Now, I confess to you that it's actually been a couple of years since I've had an actual doctor's physical, okay? And I'm being chastised for it all the time, okay? But spiritually speaking, right? Here's the pot calling the kettle back, right? Preacher won't get a physical, but he's saying, your soul, your soul needs regular checkups. And the Lord's Day is like a spiritual physical to care for your soul when you feel weary, Uh, Loved one, how is your soul? How is your faith? Do you find your confidence slipping? Is Jesus less in your eyes than he used to be? The Lord's Day is as a time to give reflection and health and vitality to your faith, where your faith is built up in the Christian community that loves you and wants to build up your faith. And this last point here, why does this matter in this day and age? An issue of what they say here at the end of verse 25. Encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What do you think that is getting at there? Why does this matter in this day and age? You know, we, you, can, you can go to church online now. But in this day and age. But when it talks about the day with a capital D here. What this is in reference to is the fact of uh, the end of the ages dawning into this world. The New Testament would describe this world as the new creation that will be one day has broken into this creation and is forming. And so it is as if the cup is being filled and filled and filled and filled. And one day it's going to overflow as Christ returns and ushers in that new kingdom. But we're not there yet. But that day is close. And so as that day approaches, there is this sense of urgency, a sense of sincerity that the writer of the Hebrews is saying, now is not the time, especially now is not the time to neglect the need of your soul for the gathering of God's people. Now, all this to say that it might seem counterintuitive or foolish to address this subject out of Hebrews to the people of God as they're physically gathered together. But the book of Hebrews is written as a reminder to those who identify with Christ. Keep this in your hearts. Now again, just very basically, sometimes you and I struggle with this sense, right? Maybe you wake up on a Sunday morning and say, you know, I just don't feel like it. I just don't feel like it. What's the response in that moment? What is the response in that moment? And I want to be very clear here for you. Guilt is never the motivator for anything in the Christian life. Okay? It is not come to church or else. That sentiment is not even in the stratosphere of understanding the reality of the Christian faith. Guilt is never the motivator. Guilt is never the motivator for anything in the Christian life. We do not go to church because of guilt. Instead, we are the church because of grace. 
Grace is always the motivator for everything in the Christian life because of what Jesus has done for us and in our lives and because of what he's doing in the lives of those around us. We love to be together and to be with those who love Jesus too. Because we like that, we want to be with those who will praise the God of grace. Guilt is not the motivator. Grace is always the motivator because of what Jesus has done. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, consider all of that and say, don't forsake the church. Love the church. Christ loves the church. And he wants his people to love the church as well and to be together with those who love the church to give praise to the God of grace. So this, these coming months, these coming weeks, we'll be looking at elements of the church as it gathers together and what it means for us and how we fit into all that God is doing as we worship the God of grace. It's a beautiful thing. But loved ones, Jesus loves the church calls upon you to love his people as well and not to forsake the assembly together. And by God's grace, may he help us do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the correction that it gives, the encouragement that it gives. And we pray that you would help us to now let this settle deeply into our hearts that we might, as Jesus does, love your church and your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.